The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Selected Verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of the livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'll add my welcome to that of Derek's this morning. Uh, my name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning to worship the Lord. As we uh, prepare to give our attention to the Word of God, let's ask His blessing on it to our hearts. Father, you tell us that your Word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it can penetrate our hearts. And you've used it that way. Father, for generation upon generation in the lives of your people. And we ask this morning that you would open our hearts to its truths and help us to see afresh the gift that you've given us in your word and the gift you've given us specifically in the command that we're studying this morning. And then, Lord, we ask that you would work powerfully to change us deep inside that our lives truly would be lived for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, this morning we continue our study in the Ten Commandments. We come to the fourth commandment, uh, the longest of the commandments. But before we begin, it's always good to remind ourselves of the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments. They were given to an already rescued people to a people who, based on no merit of their own, had already been rescued by the living God. God did not 
come to this people that was in captivity, that was in slavery and bondage for 400 years. He didn't come to them and give them the Ten Commandments and say, now, you keep these commandments for a few generations, and then we'll talk about your rescue. No, he said this in verse 6. He said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and then he gives them the commandments. He reminds them first of who he is. He's the Lord, the only true God, their God. And he reminds them of all that he's already done for them. And that's critically important that we start there. It's critically important for them and for us because I think we have a tendency to think about God's law in one of two ways. We think of it either as a means through which we might gain the favor of God and somehow keep the favor of God as we rigorously apply the law to our lives or as some burden imposed upon us by our God, a bunch of rules that we're to follow. This commandment may be one that we treat that way as a burden more than any other. But they're actually, as we've studied and we've seen it, they're actually our freedom charter. They show us an already redeemed people, not how to earn the favor of God or keep the favor of God, but how as a redeemed people already enjoying the favor of God, how we can live to his glory. How our souls can find true joy and satisfaction in life, something that many of us seem to lack and struggle to find. Because if we're honest with ourselves, there are very few things we cherish more than our time. And some of us would say we feel like we live lives on a spiritual treadmill as well as a vocational treadmill. We're just trying to keep up. Seems we never have enough time to get done the things we need to get done and we don't have time to study the scriptures like we should or to pray. And the result is that we live our lives weary. And this commandment, this commandment in the mercy of God is one of his provisions for our weariness. Our spiritual weariness, our emotional weariness, our physical weariness. I love what one writer said about the fourth commandment. He said, it is the blessing we love to hate. Like we just chafe under it. We misunderstand it, we chafe under it. We find ourselves constantly asking, what can I get away with on the Sabbath? What can I do? What can I not do? We want all the categories to be worked out. We want to just settle them in our minds. Or maybe we don't even think there is a fourth commandment, practically speaking. Years ago, many years, I uh, chaired the theological exam committee of the Presbytery. And I remember we had one candidate, one seminary graduate come through and in the Bible, all these different areas you're tested on, in the Bible area you're tested on, we'll ask you questions like, you know, can you tell us the Ten Commandments? Then we'll ask them questions about the Ten Commandments. And when we were dealing with the Ten Commandments, we came to the Fourth Commandment, and we said, now tell me what that means. The guy got it right, but, you know, in terms of quoting it, tell me what that means. And he basically described something that we were hearing him say, it's, not, it's just a day like any other day. Yeah. It's like, huh, okay. So we probed a little further and probed a little further, and finally, he actually admitted, he said, you know, when you really think about it, when I think about it, I think I really just believe in nine of the commandments. And he didn't pass his ordination exams. 
It's the commandment in which we take the least delight, certainly not one that brings us joy. And yet, listen for a moment to what the Lord says to a people, to the Israelites, when they're ignoring the Sabbath and treating it just like any other day of the week. Listen to this promise from God. And if you're taking notes, it's in Isaiah 58. This is this incredible promise. He says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and doing as you please, then you will find your joy in the Lord. There's a promise there's a blessing in keeping this command that I fear we, like Israel, may have lost sight of. Many of us are struggling with real, meaningful, spiritual joy in our lives. We would say, if we're honest, we'd say we're exhausted physically and distant from God spiritually. Maybe, maybe our lack of delight in the Sabbath is directly related to why we have so little deep abiding joy. Maybe it's why we're so weary spiritually and emotionally and physically. Could it be that God is correct, that there's great blessing to be found in the rhythm of work and rest that he has graciously called us to? Could it be? Let's dive in and see. If you look in your outline, the fourth commandment, brings us first into a new way of thinking about time. Look at verse 12, and we'll read through the beginning of 14. Moses says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Here what we encounter really is a new way of thinking about time, about our time. We're told to observe the Sabbath. Uh, in Exodus, in the account in Exodus 20, we're told to remember the Sabbath, and we're told how to do it by keeping it holy, a word that simply means to keep it set apart. It's different than the other days. It's not just another day of the week. And I love what Moses says here. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath, a word that means to cease or to rest, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Notice he doesn't say the seventh is a Sabbath, a day to rest. He doesn't say it's a Sabbath unto ourselves to do what we please. He says it's a Sabbath set apart unto the Lord. So part of what Moses is trying to tell the people of God, part of what he's trying to tell us, he's reminding us that our time really isn't our own. And that God has graciously given us specific directives Specific rhythms for work and rest that are given for our joy and for our well-being and our spiritual well-being. And this whole concept, the whole concept of a Sabbath rest, it's not new. It didn't just show up here in the Ten Commandments. If you go back to Genesis 2, if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 2. You remember, after the six days of creation, what did God do on the seventh? He rested. He didn't rest in the sense that he was exhausted after creating the world. That's not the point. That's not even possible for an all-powerful God to be tired. He rested in the sense of he's setting a pattern for his people. 
We see that also in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12. You remember when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they're groaning and moaning and, you know, we don't have any water, we don't have any food. You should have left us in Egypt and just let us die in Egypt. And God agreed to provide for them manna in the morning and quail every evening. And he did it for how many days a week? Six days a week. And he told them, you can't store this up. You are not to store it up. You're to gather only what you need for each day, except on the sixth. On the sixth day, you're allowed to store up what you'll need for the seventh, because I'm not going to send manna or quail on the seventh. It's a day of rest. It's a Sabbath. It's not a new concept. God was, in Exodus, there graciously giving them a new rhythm for living. He was teaching them and teaching us to trust him for his gracious provision in our lives. He was giving to these already rescued former slaves who had to work seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. He's saying, I want you to rest. Work six days and rest on the seventh. Similarly, similarly, you and I are given six days to get all of our work done, and we're told to, to rest, to set the seventh day apart unto the Lord for worship and for rest. I love what Kevin DeYoung wrote about this rhythm. He wrote a little book on the Ten Commandments, this rhythm of work and rest. Listen to this simple sentence. He says this, We rest so that we might be free to worship God, and we worship in part... By trusting him enough to rest. We worship in part by trusting him enough to rest. We've got all the time we need to get done what he wants us to get done. He will provide for us. We worship in part by trusting him enough to rest on the day that he's told us we are to do that. It's part of how God's made provision for our weariness. Commanding us, because it would take a command... To remember the Sabbath, to set it apart. Here's the, maybe the summary of what he's calling us to. Simply put, he's calling his people to step back from life's ordinary routines and demands, to step back for one day out of seven in order that we might rest and reflect upon and rediscover the goodness and the grace of God. But if we're honest, some of us would say it doesn't sound very efficient, does it? Set apart a whole day? If I can't get everything I need to get done now, how am I going to do that if I celebrate the Sabbath day? I love what uh, uh, Bill Gates said. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, said in an interview many years ago to Time Magazine, they asked him why he didn't believe in God. And part of his reply that had to do with the Sabbath was this. He said, just in terms of the allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. I was thinking about that a lot this week. Sadly, I think many professing believers might actually agree with that. Not theologically, but practically that's what their lives would say. There's so many more things I can be doing on a Sunday morning, much less on a Sunday, on a day. Setting aside a Sunday morning, even just a Sunday morning, is not very efficient. But this commandment brings us into a new way of thinking about our time. 
about the time that God's given us. And secondly, it gives us a changed perspective on worship and work and rest. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or daughter or male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So we've already seen that God said, I'm giving you six days to work. And just just to, to look at that again real briefly, we were created to work. I'm amazed at at how many people, Christians included, look at work as part of the curse. But that's not true. We're given work back in the garden. Work is a divine gift. It existed in the Garden of Eden before the fall. In Genesis 2, God creates man and he puts him in the garden and he says, Your job, your work is to tend and care for it. The problem came when man sinned and the curse entered. In Genesis 3, God says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Work is a divine gift, but it's a corrupted gift now because of the fall. But then he says, Do all your work in six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And then I love that list. Neither us nor our manservant, our maidservant, our sons, you know, he goes through that list. It's the first worker's bill of rights. See what he's given us here? He's saying, here is, a, here is the rhythm I'm giving to you for work and rest. A, a six and one rhythm. And how are we to keep it? Simply by dedicating one day out of seven exclusively to him. A day to step back again, I'd say, from the ordinary routines and demands of life to rest and rediscover and reflect on the goodness and the grace of our God. It changes our perspective on worship. We see worship as a a celebratory invitation to gather together as a church family and to meet with our God and to praise Him and pray to Him and, and seek to ascribe glory to Him. Is that the way we see worship? When we think of Sunday morning, is that in a sense, the highlight of our week when we gather as the church family and do that? I was thinking about just some practical questions here. Are we, you know, we have to answer this individually, but as we look at our worship, would we say that if we're honest, would we say we're keeping the Lord's day or are we keeping the Lord's morning or maybe just the Lord's hour? Do we ever, through the course of the day, consider or discuss the things of God that we've seen in the morning when we were gathered as His people, or is it pretty much over, the spiritual side of the Lord's Day is pretty much over when we leave the parking lot? Do we find ourselves running hard and fast all week, and then the weekend comes and we play or tackle other projects on Saturday and end up staying up way too late on Saturday night? So we're tired when we gather, or do we prepare ahead of time for worship? I love reading Thomas Watson, the 17th century English pastor. The problem was around back then, just like it was around in Moses' day, but this is what Watson said. He says, when Saturday evening approaches, sound a retreat. 
Call your minds off from the things of the world and summon your thoughts together to think of the great work of the approaching day, to think of worship. And he says this, evening preparation will be like the tuning of an instrument. It will fit the heart so much better for the upcoming Sabbath. When we, when we understand and embrace this commandment, it changes our perspective on worship. It changes our perspective on work. You know, both the Old and the New Testaments recognize that there are times when work is necessary. We call it deeds of mercy, right? Doctors, nurses, policemen, firemen, pastors. There's some work that's necessary. they are deeds of mercy. It's okay that those are done on the Lord's day. There are also occasions, if you, if you read Luke 14, there are occasions where, as, as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, where you're, what we call your ox is in a ditch. Have you all ever heard that phrase? My ox is in a ditch. I have to do this on Sunday. A pastor, a retired pastor at the last service came up to me and said, I was talking after I preached this many years ago, I was talking, this lady was coming out, and I was like, you know, hey, Susie, how you doing? Where's your husband? And she said, he pushed his ox into a ditch. <laughs> Not the same thing as your ox is in a ditch. But the question is this. Are we doing work on the Sabbath that's really unnecessary? I remember being a student and, and struggling with Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. That was my catch-up time, right? Got out of class on Friday, didn't think about anything until Sunday afternoon and then the pressure it's like the cloud comes over you of all that has to be done for the next day it's crunch time that's not keeping the sabbath bottom line is yes there's legitimate work to be done even on the sabbath but are we allowing work unnecessary work to crowd in and ruin our sabbath and rob us of the blessing of a sabbath rest it changes our perspective on worship and work it changes our perspective on rest. I love um, uh, verse 14. Uh, you know, on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And you're just like, man, there's so much stuff there after that. Why don't he just put a period? Because he hadn't made his point. On it you shall do no work. And then he lists all these other people in their lives and then says at the end that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You see, the, the Sabbath was not just to be a benefit or a blessing to the Israelite landowners while others around them continued to work. The Sabbath, the, the rest of the Sabbath was designed to be a communal blessing, not an individual blessing. Excuse me. Communal blessing, not merely an individual blessing. When we think about Keeping the Sabbath, it's fascinating to me when you talk to people about it. I've been talking to people about it this week, and often we quickly jump to just the practical questions. Can I do this on the Sabbath? Is that okay? Can I go out to eat on the Sabbath? Can I watch sports on Sabbath? Can I go shopping? I find great rest in shopping. I find great rest in sport. Like if you, gotta, if you watch golf, do you listen to Jim Nance on the Golf Channel? That will put you to sleep. That is restful. It's amazing. We, we come up with all these practical questions, and in one sense, we're kind of missing the point. 
we have to consider not just the worship and the rest elements of the day, but also what the verse 14 is saying, we also have to consider the impact our choices might have on others. I wish I could go further, but I don't have time. A new way of thinking about time, a changed perspective on worship, work, and rest, and lastly, a deepening understanding of our past and our present and our future. Verse 15 You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Well, in Exodus, when he lists this fourth commandment in Exodus, he argues from creation. He says, the Lord created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Your image bearers were to follow his example. But here he's not arguing from creation. He's arguing from redemption. Sabbath looked back not just to creation, but also to redemption. And they were to, it was to remind the people that God had delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. It reminded them of their redemption. It was a day of celebration. It was a day of freedom to celebrate the liberation that was given to them by their God. Certainly, you and I need to live in that biblical rhythm of work and rest that he gives us here. We need to celebrate the Lord's day for his glory. We need to do it for our own good, but something's changed for us we've received a new and greater deliverance. We don't simply on the Sabbath look back to what God did thousands of years ago rescuing the people from slavery in Egypt. We look to Jesus who's delivered us from a far greater slavery and bondage. We look to Jesus who accomplished through his life and death and resurrection who accomplished our redemption. He's the fulfillment of this commandment. And because of his finished work, there's no need for us to strive for our salvation if we're trusting in him. There's no reason, in fact, it's an offense to try to use the law of God to gain and keep his favor. If we're in Christ, there's no need for us to strive to protect our unrighteous records when we've been given the righteous record of Christ. He's the one through whom we'll enter into the ultimate Sabbath rest of heaven itself. He's our Sabbath rest, and the Lord's day is a blessing. It's a gift. It's a blessing from him to us. It's not a burden. And when we learn to delight in it, as he says in Isaiah, when we learn to take joy in it and delight in it, we'll be refreshed spiritually. We'll be refreshed physically. And then, just like he said in Isaiah 58, then we will find our joy in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, before we even come to the table, we want to thank you for this command, this gift of calling us to observe a Sabbath rest unto you. We ask, Lord, that you would transform the way that we view this command, that it might no longer be seen by us as a burden or as some means to gain your favor, but instead, Lord, we might see it as you've intended for us to see it, as a gift. Jesus told us the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Help us to learn to see it that way, Lord, and to keep it as you've commanded us to and to find the joy and the rest that you offer us through it. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.